The History Channel original podcast. History This Week, June 10th, 1692. I'm Sally Helm. Bridget Bishop wakes up in shackles in a stonewalled jail cell in Massachusetts. Later that morning, a man comes to open the door. He takes off her shackles, a relief, and loads her into a two-wheeled wooden cart. The outside air probably feels all the sweeter after the time she's spent imprisoned. The cart is open on the sides, so people on the streets can look at her as she passes. After all, her case is meant to be a warning. She passes down Prison Lane to Main Street, with a procession of marshals and constables in tow. The cart stops in a spot of pasture on a hill, where a rope is hanging from freshly installed gallows. There aren't any eyewitness accounts of Bridget Bishop's hanging, but as she climbed up the ladder to the gallows, she would have seen a panoramic view below her. Fields, inlets, the shimmering Atlantic Ocean. And there would have been a crowd. Law officers there to read the death warrant. Ministers to offer last rites. And onlookers who were just curious to see a witch. According to some villagers, there were otherworldly beings present at Bishop's hanging, too. One woman said she saw the devil help a man find a perch on the gallows. We don't know what Bishop herself said or thought as she walked up to the gallows, but we know she would have denied up and down that the devil helped her get there. She insisted on her innocence until the very last moment. Finally, a bag is placed over Bishop's head. Someone binds her petticoats to her legs. And she is hanged. She becomes the first of 19 people convicted and executed for witchcraft during the Salem witch trials. Her death raised questions and doubts. Doubts that, if acted upon, could have stopped the panic from taking off. But instead, it became the first in a deluge of convictions, trials, and hangings that made the summer of 1692 go down in infamy. Today, the Salem Witch Trials. What happened that summer to cause a witch hunt? And what can we learn from the story of 19 supposed witches condemned to death? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Marilyn Roach has spent her whole life in Massachusetts. She now lives in Watertown, which is not so far from Salem. In fact, the Salem Village minister moved to Watertown after the whole witch trial fiasco. Whenever I walk to the public library, I'm going across his backfield. <laughs> it's at that public library that Roach first started reading about the witch trials back in the 1970s. She became fascinated by the story and decided to visit Salem to see where it all happened. 
It was late May, so the wisteria was blooming in the Federalist District of Salem. And it, you know, it was postcard blue skies and, and perfect weather. She had a list of places that she wanted to visit. A few houses that had been around since the time of the trials, the handful of tourist spots that existed in the 70s. And as she walked around Salem, she started to feel that the stuff she was hearing from tour guides and reading on placards and pamphlets didn't quite match what she'd read in the library. I was sort of brooding on the fact that I didn't think somebody had gotten the story right in whatever I'd just seen. So she's walking across the town common, brooding, thinking that maybe, possibly, this is something she could write about, when she looks overhead and sees this bird, a tern. You know, like, more delicate than a seagull. Way up above me, practically, flying into the sun. And it was just so beautiful. You could say it was a messenger from the God saying, do this project. That project has now gone on for more than 30 years. Roach has fallen down rabbit holes, gone through library basements, read hundreds of papers of records, trial manuscripts, government documents on microfilm. She's still a walking witch trials archive today. Oops, sorry. Dropped the suspect list. (laughs) And she came out of her research with several books. The first was 27 years in the making. Once it actually happened was two and a half pounds in hardcover. Two and a half pounds, wow. I weighed it once. It's a day-by-day chronicle of the witch trials, from the start of 1692 through the January five years later. And so Roach really got to know the Salem that used to exist, before the placards and the tourist shops and the wisteria blooming on the town common. What would Salem have been like in the 1690s? Well, it was the second largest city or town, actually, in Massachusetts, Boston being the first. The area known as Salem in the 1690s was much larger than the Salem of today. It encompassed Salem Town, a bustling port area, and the more rural Salem Village, which was mostly poor farmers. Only about 100 families lived in Salem Village back in 1692, so everyone knew everyone. I imagine that gossip was pretty much a favorite indoor sport, (laughs) or an outdoor sport for that matter. It had a pretty typical small-town vibe. Hard to keep your business to yourself. Easy to get into little spats with your neighbors. There's a lot of bad blood, you can tell. uh, Conflicts between neighbors and people don't really forget it. And Christian forgiveness isn't as common as it's supposed to be. Even though the vast majority of the community was Puritan, they believed in predestination. That your actions on earth were a sign of whether or not you were in God's favor. And they also believed that some people among them were trying to work against God. Because the devil was considered an actual entity, the idea that somebody could ally themselves deliberately with forces of evil and try to counter all that was good, all that was supposed to be what God's people were trying to do, that's what being a witch meant in those days, before the law. In the years leading up to 1692, Accusations of witchcraft would pop up now and again. Maybe not unrelated to all that bad blood and neighborly conflict. What did people think witches could do? Ah, well, they could sour the milk and make the cow sick, presumably sink a ship at sea if they had the right spell. So if you had a fight with your neighbor and then something bad happened afterwards, well, maybe that neighbor was a witch. 
Witches could also reveal themselves in your nightmares. Or maybe you just got a bad feeling about someone's personality. She was sarcastic or combative. A turbulent woman, as the phrase was several times. Somebody who was always asking favors, which could be grating if somebody's coming around to borrow a cup of cornmeal every other day. Men and women could both be accused. But older, widowed women were particular targets. And accusations of witchcraft were quite serious. It was both a religious crime and a legal one. In fact, a capital offense. If convicted, you could be put to death. Between 1638 and 1691, about 120 people in New England were accused of witchcraft. But few were convicted and hanged. One of those accused was Bridget Bishop. Who is she and what was she known for? Well, she was known for being assertive, you might say. Bishop frequented taverns and dressed flamboyantly. She'd been married three times. The rumor was that she'd bewitched her first husband to death. And her second husband? He is uh, not the best husband. He, He hits her a couple of times. They get into arguments. She hits him back which I rather appreciated. In one particularly loud fight, Bishop called her husband Old Rogue and Old Devil on the Sabbath day. When the neighbors heard, the couple was sentenced to stand back-to-back gagged in the marketplace with a paper on their heads describing their offense for all to see. The only way out of this punishment was to pay a fine. And his adult daughter pays the fine for him, but she gets to stand there. Because the stepdaughter wouldn't pay the fine for her. Then, a few years later, a case is brought against Bishop for witchcraft. There are various specific accusations. There is some testimony of somebody whose horses spooked, ran into a swamp, and took forever to get them out of the mud. Someone testified that Bishop had sent a black cat to terrorize them in the night and that her specter had been seen in the barn stealing eggs. A specter being like a ghost, except that it's the spirit of a person who's still alive. And the witches could send their specters after you and physically pinch you, even though they're spirits. We don't know exactly what went down at Bishop's first trial, but since she lived to tell the tale, we can assume the case was dismissed. But afterwards, neighbors still feel suspicious. Every time somebody's pig gets sick or there's a quarrel and somebody trips and falls afterwards, they're wondering if it's Bridget. So by 1692, Bishop had a reputation. And unfortunately for her, in 1692, a lot of people in Salem are feeling uneasy and ready to point the finger at someone. There are several factors that contribute to this sense of unease. First off, there was a fear we can probably all relate to of a dangerous disease, smallpox. There were some cases, especially in the port towns, which would be Boston and Salem, didn't turn into a full-blown epidemic, fortunately, but you don't know that, and people remembered how bad things had gotten before that. During one past outbreak, someone described how you'd see funeral processions crossing each other in the streets. They'd have to wait at the crossroads for the coffin traffic to clear. So many people were being taken to the graveyard. So people are feeling afraid about the presence of smallpox. And there's also political drama. Massachusetts is still a British colony. 
the British don't want them to have all that much self-rule, though they have to allow it to some degree. The distance made it necessary for a local government to be keeping order here, but it was becoming too independent for England's taste. These debates over self-governance would eventually culminate in the American Revolution. In the years before 1692, Massachusetts had been negotiating a new charter. And while they were without one, their local government was essentially treading water, not knowing what it had the authority to do. So people were living in a constant limbo, far from the seat of power. At the beginning of 1692, a new charter has been signed, but it's still making its way across the sea from England. Massachusetts has no idea what it's going to say, and people have to wait in this unstable, uncertain state until that new charter arrives. And to top it all off, they're being attacked. New England, Canadian New France, and indigenous nations are embroiled in a war. So English settlements are being raided. Earlier attacks had driven a number of people south from Maine and New Hampshire to Boston and Salem. So these towns are now home to displaced people who had just suffered a major trauma. In January, as the year 1692 begins, the town of York, Maine, is attacked by new French and indigenous forces, leaving up to 50 people dead and another 75 to 100 survivors taken hostage. That one was fresh in people's minds when the first of the girls started to become nervous and upset. The girls. They're 9 and 11, the daughter and the niece of a local Salem Village minister named Samuel Paris. He's the person who eventually moves to Roach's backyard near the Watertown Library. When Paris first arrives in Salem, the village is on the market for a new minister. It had demanded its own congregation, separate from Salem towns, years before. And since then, they'd cycled through three different ministers. They'd been pretty fickle. And when Paris gets the job in 1688... He's been ordained, and he's supposedly going to be there, peacefully being the minister for the rest of his life, and and everybody's going to be happy about that. But uh, people have had second thoughts. Many of the villagers decide they don't like him, and they stop paying his salary. So life becomes difficult in the Paris home. It's cold, the wood pile is low... And uh, there's there's the friction within the community. And then there's the attack on York. And shortly after, it seems to be when the girls start acting a little weirdly. They start making odd noises. Creeping under the furniture, having strange aches and pains. It's, It's hard to know if it's a game gone wrong or if there's something else wrong. The family tries home remedies, fasting and praying. Nothing seems to work. Finally, they call a doctor. He says, well, they must be under an evil hand, meaning under a curse. As Marilyn Roach puts it, this is when the question changes from what's ailing you to who. Because if the girls were under a curse, someone in the community had put it on them. A witch. The girls can hear this talk swirling around them. The houses are not that big, even the better ones. So I'm sure they are can hear what the adults are saying in the next room, if not in the same room. One day, when the Paris parents are out, a neighbor comes over suggesting they try an old English folk charm to help. It's good magic, she thinks, to repel the bad. 
The neighbor and an enslaved woman who worked for the Paris family feed the dog a witch cake made of the Paris girl's urine. Been digesting it was supposed to hurt the witch. And uh, then you'd know who it was. Well, that doesn't happen. Instead, the girls are more frightened and have greater reactions because they must know this is supposed to be magic to reveal a witch. Therefore, they expect a witch. And they start seeing apparitions or reporting them anyway. And the accusations begin. One of the first accused is the enslaved woman who agreed to try making the witch cake. Pretty soon, other girls in town are spooked, and they begin to suffer similar afflictions. And? They start naming names, and I suppose the adults are at least, if not asking them, who do you see, could it be so-and-so? They've probably talked among themselves, maybe what's-her-name is causing this, because I never trusted her. That is how Bridget Bishop gets brought into the fray. She already had a reputation around Salem Village, even though she lived elsewhere in Salem. But that reputation made her a natural suspect. And on April 19, 1692, she's one of four women brought to the Salem Village meeting house to be formally accused before the court. Normally, this sort of hearing would be held in a local tavern. But so many people wanted to see all this that they had to move it to the larger building. So this is getting to be quite a production. As Bishop is led into the room, the afflicted girls, her accusers, begin to writhe in pain. Thrashing around on the floor with their limbs twisted as if the bones would break, observers said. And, and crying out in agonies, as if there was something there attacking them that nobody else could see, but they could. The magistrate tells Bishop, quote, You are here accused by four or five for hurting them. What do you say to it? And she says at one point that I don't know anybody here. I've never been here in my life. Bishop was from Salem, but remember, that was a large area. She said she'd never been to the neighborhood of Salem Village before. She'd never even seen these girls. She did not know the people, and they didn't really know her except by reputation. But whether or not Bishop had been to the village, the girls said her specter had. One of the girls says she'd pointed out Bishop's specter to her brother, who had then struck at the specter with his sword, and they'd heard a petticoat tear. The judge turns to Bishop and asks, is not your coat cut, and she denies it, but by golly, her skirt does have a tear in it, and that does not help her case. Bishop assures the judge she's innocent. I know not what a witch is, she says. And he says, how do you know then that you are not a witch? It goes on and on like that, and they're just not believing her. And of course, this isn't being done quietly in the courtroom. It must have been quite a racket. The afflicted girls continue to thrash and writhe. Bishop is protesting her innocence. At one point, she says to the judge, If I were a witch, you'd know it. Well, you can't threaten me, she says. God would not allow it. Well, unfortunately, God didn't allow it. At the end of the hearing, Bishop is led out of the courtroom and sent back to the Salem jail, where she waits for a few weeks until being moved to Boston with several other accused witches. So when she gets to Boston, is what are the jails like? Are they just full of accused witches? Uh, well, no, they were regular burglars, too. <laughs> but the jails were getting crowded. And the jails weren't built to hold a lot of people or anybody for a long time. 
They're filling up partly because the local government is still waiting for a new charter. It's getting hot, stuffy, smelly. The sanitation is just a couple of buckets. When the charter finally arrives at the end of May, things are nearing a breaking point. They need to try people just to get them out of these jails. So they institute a special court of Oyer and Terminian. Meaning to hear and to determine. And with that, the trials can begin. First up is Bridget Bishop. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. By the beginning of June, Bridget Bishop has been transferred back to the Salem jail to await her trial. And on June 2nd, she's brought to face Salem's grand jury. Guards guide her past the town meeting house, which is under construction. And as they pass, some large piece of wood dislodges and falls down, makes great bang. This only adds to the rumor mill. The workmen say, it wasn't us. It must have been that witch. You know, I've, I've dealt with contractors. Some of them are very nice and some are impossible. But uh, anyway, that was something that people gossiped about. Is she getting back at them by collapsing the meeting house? Bishop's case is soon sent from the grand jury to a jury of her peers, although at the time they all would have been men. At the jury trial, the afflicted take the stand one by one to recount the ways they were attacked by Bishop's specter that it bit them, or pinched them, or choked them, or whipped them with iron rods. This is all known as spectral evidence, things the specter had been seen doing, not Bishop herself. And it really makes up the bulk of the case. The stuff that's not spectral evidence really seems awfully thin now. It was essentially years' worth of neighborhood gossip. One couple claimed Bishop had cursed the cow they bought. Someone else said coins had disappeared from his pocket after Bishop paid him for work. Somebody falling sick after a quarrel. Suspicions she had given people nightmares. Bishop has the chance to defend herself. She pleads not guilty. But when the verdict comes back, it is guilty. And Bishop is sentenced to death by hanging. This will be the first hanging of a witch in New England in four years. And it sends a message. 
it lets the public and the accused know that the judges will accept spectral evidence to prove this capital crime. And one midsummer day, Bridget Bishop is hanged. And after that, there's a pause, as if people are wondering, do we really want to do this or not? Someone has now actually died, largely because of this spectral evidence. Which is flimsy, totally immaterial, actually. It gives some people pause. One of the judges actually quits. He does not agree with the way things are going. There's too much emphasis on accepting spectral evidence. After that, the government decides, well, let's ask some experts on spectral stuff. They go to some ministers and say, what should we do? The ministers write a letter in response saying, don't pay attention to spectral evidence. You can't trust it. It's the devil's delusions. But at the end, we trust you that you will get the real witches, assuming there are any, by using the laws of God, which is to say, don't use folk magic, and the wholesome dictates of the English law system. So basically, don't use spectral evidence, but do get the witches. The legal system seems to take the second part more seriously than the first and continues to allow and rely on spectral evidence in trials. The next few months are a blur of accusations, convictions, hangings in Salem and surrounding towns, even spreading as far as Connecticut. It just seems self-perpetuating. One minister who petitions against spectral evidence soon finds himself accused— And some of the accused think that if they confess and then testify against other accused witches, they might be able to save themselves, or at least delay the inevitable. So as the summer goes on, more people confess because they're frightened out of their minds, some of them, as they say later. The accusers are caught in this cycle, too. When one of the girls says she's feeling better, that she'd been wrong and wasn't bewitched after all, the other afflicted assume or say, she must have sold out to the devil. If she doesn't hurt anymore, she's gone and joined them because they said they'd stop hurting you if you join them. So now she's accused. In one town, Andover, one out of every 15 people was accused. In the fall, as the weather is getting cooler, the Massachusetts governor finally decides this is above his pay grade. He writes a letter to his bosses, the British Crown, for advice. And while he waits for a reply, which could take months, he says no more trials, no more arrests unless absolutely necessary. Meanwhile, people have started to turn on this whole witch business. More of them are finding their friends and family accused. And there's a backlash against the witch hunt and against the use of spectral evidence. And that changes things. What can you really prove? You can't prove spectral evidence. And once they stopped accepting it in court, then suddenly everything calmed down. Finally, by the end of October, the month that is now Salem's biggest tourist season, the witch hunt has pretty much ground to a halt. In the months and years that follow, many of the people involved admit that they were wrong. Reverend Paris publicly apologizes for the accusations that started in his home, for trusting spectral evidence, and for fostering the broad sense of distrust. Massachusetts holds a public fast so that everyone can repent. 
wording of the fast order that was issued by Massachusetts. It didn't really emphasize that, but everybody knew that's what it was about. In 1711, nearly all the victims of the trials are exonerated by the state, but not Bridget Bishop. Do you know why that is? No. I think it's because the families didn't petition. Some people were forgotten, and they weren't advocated for. Bishop and five other forgotten women were finally pardoned in 2001. Right now, the Massachusetts legislature is considering adding one last woman who's been left out all this time to the list of the exonerated. In 2021. While this whole episode might feel like it belongs squarely in another time, Marilyn Roach doesn't see it that way. She says there's a lasting lesson here one that we would all do well to pause and think about in times of stress and turmoil. Something appears to be going very wrong, and maybe it is, but is it what you think it is? And even if that's what's happening, are the people you suspect the ones doing it? And if there's a whole lot of people freaking out, it's hard to speak up, especially if you have doubts yourself. Basically, Avoid a panic. Don't jump to conclusions. It's a lesson that could be applicable in the halls of Congress or the criminal justice system or whenever a whole group or class of people is being blamed for something, which happens all too often in our daily lives. What does this show us about human nature, I guess? Ooh, yeah, watch out for human nature. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Special thanks today to Stacey Schiff. We consulted her great book, The Witches, when putting together this episode. It has lots of interesting information about this period. This episode was produced by Julia Press. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Jonathan Siri, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. McKamey Lynn is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.